You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We are pleased to announce our podcast is a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle and me at leadersandlegends.net. Howie Politics and State Affairs Pro offer insider election coverage, polling, and analysis in Indiana. Our nonpartisan news and legislative tools create a winning combination pro subscribers can't live without. For all the resources you need this election season and beyond, visit pro.stateaffairs.com slash in. That's pro.stateaffairs.com slash in. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is a man who fills both nouns of this podcast to its fullest. And that's my friend and one of the absolute best people I've ever met, Milt Thompson. Milt, thank you so much. Robert, thank you so much for the invitation. I was beginning to wonder if if I were going to be included in all of these stellar guests that you've had before. And I was beginning to wonder, or maybe get a little complex, but uh, all that notwithstanding, uh, I am so delighted uh, for the invitation. Can't wait to fill your time today with some some uh, jovial conversation. First of all, I just want to say congratulations to you. This is a fantastic platform. It's doing well. Your veterans platform has been known for a long, long time, and it creates value for so many people. Uh, that I'm delighted to be able to call you my friend. And uh, as I say again, delighted to be with you for whatever time you permit. Well, you're very kind as always. You know, we had to get John Thompson in first. My cousins, what we call each other when we meet each other. (laughs) (laughs) He was terrific. And I immediately thought of you. Right. You're trying to read through Milt Thompson's uh, CV, uh, pour yourself a drink and realize that you're going to stay a while because all of the things he's done, all the people he's helped, all the, the wonderful volunteer and mentorship uh, drives that he's had here in this city, in this state, it's, it's absolutely remarkable. And we're going to try to talk about as many as we can for the next hour. I should say that, um, Milt is a member of the North Central High School Hall of Fame. We have had several Hall of Famers on the podcast. Mitch Daniels. Mitch Daniels. 
Jeff Smolian. Jeff Smolian. Bart Peterson. Bart Peterson. And a guy who I think was, is he a year uh, older than you? Maybe he took some of your lunch Mark money? Mark Miles. Mark Miles. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we spent a lot of time together and we've just been corresponding. He's going to come on my television show here uh, in a little while because uh, a couple of weeks ago we had Sandy Knapp on two different versions of our show. And then I always talk on my show about Mark Miles being in charge of uh, the three largest events that we've ever had in the city of Indianapolis. Uh, the Pan American Games, where he had, I was general counsel and he was the president. And, of course, the Indianapolis 500th running. And then, of course, the Super Bowl, all of which Mark essentially presided over. And uh, Mark and I have had so many experiences that I, we can we can go on and on about those things. But, yes, North Central High School Hall of Fame. One of the questions I'm going to ask you here in a few minutes is I'm going to give you a preview. And that is, is there a particular Hoosier leader and or legend you admire most? And so I'll give you a few minutes to think about it. But I would say the most in my time, uh, adult life, working and being involved in politics and government and, and all sorts of different endeavors in this city and state, Mark Miles really is, I think, the preeminent leader, certainly non-elected leader that we've had in this city, you know, he and he and Jim Morris. What do you think is it that makes Mark just such a terrific leader, a guy who gets things done? Well, you'll have to understand, Mark and I have been friends since we were lads Uh, uh, through the Washington Township system. He went tennis. I went baseball. Uh, We still uh, uh, and uh, we utilize each other's services throughout the years. We've traveled the world uh, together. Um, he is his general counsel. There's some really special stories about that. But, you know, uh, we've talked about that a lot. Another one of our good friends, uh, Rick Fusen and I, we go back from some kind of similar paths of what we uh, Member of the kind of, IPS Hall of Fame, Mr. Fusen, right, Arlington that, that, High School. That he is. Uh, but we've talked about it for a long time, about how uh, leadership happened around here. And it used to be kind of top-down leadership, where where the Ted Bones and the Jim Morrises and the and the Michael Brownings and others kind of of that ilk, and that even kind of took down from a, another level of folks uh, that uh, really embraced leadership and what Indianapolis was going to become and how it's going to be. And they would tap you on the shoulder and say, "This is a top-down." They'll say, "Mark, I want you to kind of do this. Uh, Rick, I want you to go here and do this. Nope, I want you to go do this." And these days, however, civics is not determined that way. It's much more of a migration up through networks. And civics is not being very wealthy and not contributing, but you pay your taxes and you think that that's civics. That's not civics. What Mark understood early on was is that civics counts. We learned that from, and you were about to ask me, my own will be my mentor would be Jim Morris. Um, what we used to call him the most ethical, most ethical mover and shaker around, right? Uh, <laughs> not an elected person, but uh, as a deputy mayor under uh, Dick Luger. And, and I would have to add Dick Luger to my list of those who I would say had as much influence on me personally or otherwise. Another one of your sponsors I see there is obviously Miss um, McAllister, um, the late McAllister. Uh, so he, he certainly had an influence on everybody else that were even semi or modestly engaged in politics. But I would think that understanding civics is the most important part about the question that you asked me. 
understanding that it's more than about you. It's more than about your own fame. It's more than about your own interests. It's more about how it is you spread that interest to others. You don't get power by holding on to it, Robert. You know that. You get you get power by giving it away uh, for people to accelerate that gift that's been given to them and then they'll use it in their appropriate ways, just like you do in all your platforms. A lot of people are successful in the in the sense that you're successful as as an attorney and and a business leader and a and a, a sharp investor and but they don't have that civic gene. Why do you think you have it? And is there anyone you want to talk about who you've brought into the the world of civics and mentorship who? who really maybe wasn't a part of that. And now because of their friendship or relationship with you, they like, okay, now I'm glad I did this. Well, I I would be um, insincere if I didn't talk about the real roots of that. And the real roots of that are my parents. And my dad was a driving entrepreneur, uh, African-American who was recognized in the early sixties and like Ebony magazine and others for being a minority business entrepreneur, uh, dealing with times, uh, you know, 10 miles when he set up his shop here in Indianapolis, I was four years old, by the way, but to set up his shop there, uh, you know, just 15 miles from the grand dragon of the Ku Klux Klan and, and, uh, how savvy he was about how it is. He opts and I'm, I'm, I'm just recognizing it. And someone would come in and say, well, where's the boss? Well, he said, the boss is in Florida. Uh, uh, and as he said, well, how much does that step cost? He said, well, uh, it costs that amount. He said, who do I write the check out to? My dad would very uh, easily say, well, uh, what's a check? In other words, you, you get cash, you get this step, and we'll move along and we'll, <laughs> and we'll get along. But but some of the devastating parts of that were me learning that uh, uh, I watched my dad denying his own ownership of a business. So what that would have you know, impacted me long term. But the, to answer your other question was the uh, the Christian nature of my mother. Um, she makes sure that we had uh, and understood the right values. So if you didn't get up in time to go to Sunday school and go to go to church, uh, you wouldn't eat. <laughs> and the food would be gone before <laughs> you got up and gone. But she taught me so sort of things. And then ultimately, my mom um, uh, passed away on Valentine's Day uh, in my senior year of high school. Uh, I, whoa. What happens? Yeah. And but she had always said, "This is what you do." She gave me clear instructions. They were biblical in nature, and I'm not here to try to uh, to uh, proselytize anyone. But uh, very simply, that the values that are there, that are our family's values, that you're always going to give and give back, even notwithstanding some of the trials and tribulations that you're going to go through. Uh, it, it caused me to learn how to be better and not bitter. And there are some very bitter episodes that I could could spout. But more importantly, there are more better opportunities that I can spout. And that's why civics is ingrained in me. But you grew up. We talked to John Thompson about this. And I know that that John's a, a good friend and a, yes. just a lovely, lovely person. And a good leader. And a good, oh, great, absolutely. Great, great businessman as well. And in demand in a lot yes. of the same ways that you are. Yes. Um, my Education background is not in public relations or communications, which sometimes may be apparent and other times maybe not, <laughs> uh, but, rather, well. but rather in history. Right. And um, you grew up, and I want to talk about it if you want to. Sure. You graduated from high school, is it in 71? 72. 72 miles. This is our 71. 50th, year, uh, our 50th uh, <laughs> year reunion coming up. So you came of age in the heart of the modern civil rights movement. Yes. 
And, you know, I asked John Thompson, were you more Martin Luther King or were you more Angela Davis? And he laughed a big laugh and goes, no, I was Angela Davis. Take us back to that time, you know, as, as a young black man, clearly the, the country was changing. You were, it was being recognized, you know, in 1966, you had Lester Maddox running for uh, governor of Georgia his claim to fame was, right. I think he had a hardware store, right? He would chase black customers or potential sure. black customers around with ax handles or whatever. Four years later, you have Jimmy Carter elected governor, completely kind of different attitude. You could tell the changes were happening, not only in the South, but in the country. How did those, how did those memories come back to you? How did that, that struggle, how has that informed your life and made you better, not bitter? Robert, it's a great question, but it overflows with emotion, but also many different directions. None of it uh, simple or easy. Um, for me, uh, a lot of it happened. We didn't end up in the North Central or Washington Township area uh, because of uh, a lack of uh, uh, work ethic and uh, sometimes good fortune and good luck. Uh, we moved to the Golden Ghetto at my, I think I was age nine. Uh, because my dad had uh, uh, noticed that uh, there was an opportunity with his business that was doing uh, doing well, um, but he would never show off uh, anything down when he was on Southeastern Avenue at all. Drive his pickup truck down there, wear his work shirt that said OC on it, mm -hmm. and uh, yet at the same time, when he discovered that there's north of 38th Street, that there was uh, two areas that were designated as non-redlined areas, where it is you can go and without a mortgage and black families could could go and, and emerge and go. Uh, uh, he, he determined that he would build his own home. He would build his own home in, in the Golden Ghetto. Uh, I just recently saw a video of some uh, folks from our era where they quote unquote, the black aristocracy in town. So, you know, the who's who's <laughs> names that there are, you know, the Ray Crows and, and, yeah. uh, and, 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 and the bundles and, uh, and, and the Lily bundles. And we were just communicating recently. Uh, it, it, you just go on in the, in the Thomas Wood trails and the Greerdale roads and all those sort of things. So my dad finally was able to uh, escape us too, if you will, uh, from the Madame Cooney program down on five, a hundred block of North uh, Dorman Street and the Matakumi program. You know what that was? It was a rat eradication program. And if you brought a rat in a sealed bag and took it down to the police station, you'd get a dollar. Okay. You shouldn't tell us that where we grow it up. That's how I learned to hit a curveball. <laughs> My cousins would run the get rat around the corner. I'd take a two by four, hit the rat. And the other cousin would scoop it up in a bag. That was a dollar. That was that was our value. That was real that. money. That was real money. And then all of a sudden, from Tex Campus, downtown School 74, yeah, I'm whisked off to the Golden Ghetto. And where's the, the Golden time, Ghetto? What, 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 Golden what Ghetto is uh, Grandview Drive and Fox Hill uh, up to 71st Street and, and, and that whole area. There's another area in Pike Township uh, over by Shanghai. Uh, was the only other area where it is uh, Blacks could get something that wasn't redlined. So that's why Washington Township, Pike Township, for historical purposes, I, were the first ones really integrated in terms of township sort of things. I could tell you many stories about that. But all of a sudden we moved and I'm living on the um, east side of Grandview Drive. And there's a few of us over on that side. But on the west side is where all my neighbors were, the crows, the bundles and all mm -hmm. the people talking about. And they would go to uh, Grandview School and they would go to Harcourt School. Well, the east side, they bust us. 
It was the holders and the darings and just two in the Thompsons, a few black families, the Lucas, Dr. Lucas, a few black families on that side of that. But what we did is we got bust to Delaware Trail, which was predominantly a Jewish school. Uh, in fact, we would drive our school bus would drive by, take me, uh, Don Holder, Jerome Daring, and we would drive down uh, 64th Street, go east. And there's Deborah Jaco at the Latvian Center. And then there's Diane Renahan at the Grandview Stables. And those were three black kids, two white kids. And then we go down Hazelwood and through and around over by all the Jewish neighborhoods and take them to Delaware Trail. So all of a sudden there's culture shock for me. Right. Sure. I didn't know what Izod was. I didn't know what a Dickie was. I didn't, <laughs> didn't know what penny loafers in or penny in or penny out. I didn't know the difference. You but didn't put a quarter in your penny loafers? <laughs> well, I was trying to figure out how to get a quarter. You know, I came from a dollar for per rat. Um, but 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 there became uh, an instant awareness of what my realities would be. And folks across that I played with all summer long, they were going off to other situations. And I had to learn in a, an environment that was unlike what they had to learn through. So and when you were interacting as you as you went through high school and you went through college at Wittenberg and, and law school, I'm going to say this and it's I'm not I'm not going to phrase this probably the best. Were you always in a situation where you trusted other races and felt comfortable or was the struggle of the civil rights movement and probably also the memories of your parents and grandparents, especially right, right. so difficult that it was hard to reconcile the two. No, just trust and verify. Uh, <laughs> you know, to give the adage of uh, the, the great uh, Ronald Reagan. Um, but but trust and verify. Uh, uh, it's okay to understand. But you know, my my first is is the inclinations that were given to me. Uh, you 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 give love first uh, until someone proves uh, kind of otherwise. Uh, let me briefly kind of tell you advancing the challenge. I did great in, in college. I was a first team All American baseball player and had opportunities to do that. And uh, but you know, my dad was always interested in in education more so than sports. He didn't want a young black kid to get himself out of the quote unquote ghetto with sports. Uh, sure. So when I got drafted in the pros as a high schooler, you just know, yep. You, I said, Dad, I'm going to play pro. No, you're not. You're going to college. Uh, so he was always in demand of education. He watched me play baseball as an All-American growing up and through it zero times. He never watched me play a baseball game. Could that be part of my internal bitterness? It turned out to be my internal being better. But because when I gave the graduation speech at our law school, guess where my dad was? In the front row. Love it. Those were the things that he impressed upon me and that I've grown on to do it. Then, graduated from law school. Go ahead, go ahead. I was going to briefly uh, graduating from, from law school, where I could have been most bitter. Um, uh, I, uh, 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 this was 1979, so it was not yeah. the prehistoric days, sir. Uh, and, uh, and, and I graduate as president of the Student Bar Association. Uh, I always tease our, our current mayor because I beat him out, and he's still wondering why that <laughs> happened. So I said, That's great. I said, so I live it out, Joe. You'll be okay. You want to be the politician, not me. Um, uh, then I was a, a, a national moot court team with the judgment Matthias and we were a great team and did really, really well in the country. Uh, and, uh, I was upper end of my class. My dad saying, you know, and I get offers from wall street and 
other places. And my dad said, you know, where I asked you to go to law school because we need a lawyer in the family for the family business. Mm. I, I said, dad, you know, I'm just going to apply to the B- three big law firms. I mean, there's, there's just no, no doubt, uh, you know, $45,000, uh, you know, a year, the first year associate. And I interviewed all three of the big law firms. Uh, long story short, uh, I got rejection letters from all three and didn't understand it until I discovered well, first of all, they said the letters were essentially 11 page letters long. I mean, um, we're not culturally ready, culturally ready for what a good young kick-ass lawyer. I'm sorry, but, uh, but, uh, um, it, it was like, uh, well, they had no black partners. They had no black associates. They had no black, uh, paralegals. They had no black secretaries and nobody high school age running papers from one place to the other. So I'm, relegated to still with a, a family to pay for and to go through and no less law school expenses, the $13,500 at the Marion County Prosecutor's Office. Steve Goldsmith said, bring you in, dude. I passed the bar exam and went up to 18000 but you see the story about that value <laughs> long term, you're just not going to get it. Well, I hope that you give some, we won't name the law firms, although I'm sure we probably you know, could, but Eventually I went to one of them, but <laughs> I hope you gave, uh, you know, we, you and I know the people who lead those law firms. Right. I hope you gave them a hard time when the, well, uh, there are a lot of stories behind that that are way too plentiful. And we'll do that uh, over an adult beverage, uh, uh, Robert, but uh, we, we can talk about those at other times. You mentioned baseball and, you know, baseball seems to have been, I mean, I think football is almost like, you know, the rock, paper, and scissors of sports life these days in a lot of ways. But you really did grow up in, I guess you could almost call it the golden age of baseball in the late 50s, all through the 60s. Uh, I was a, still am a fan of the, the Reds, and I was born in 67, so I came of age during the time of the Big Red Machine. You won your opening game, and my White Sox are playing as we're speaking now for our opening. <laughs> we'll be okay. We'll know that result your- when your podcast uh, airs. <laughs> I, I can see you because we only post the audio, not the video, that there is a right. white Sox cap. Uh, <laughs> Always. Am, I, am I guessing that's your team? You and President Obama? Yeah, well, I don't know about all that, but it's me. <laughs> what what drove you to baseball? What what captured your fancy? Of well, uh, I, I think my uh, before we moved from Indi- uh, from uh, Illinois, Joliet, Illinois, uh, kind of south side uncles and all, and they were White Sox fans. And so they, they kind of ingratiated me into that. And so when we left here, came here, there was no essentially a major league team here. So that became my first love and then has been my long lasting love. Um, it, all of it followed me in terms of my activity with baseball, uh, being the founder of uh, RBI Indiana, um, the uh, reviving baseball in the inner cities program, uh, which was a challenge uh, way back in the day. Um, but it is now the largest RBI um, program in the, in the country with a non-major league system, uh, uh, city. Uh, and I am on the Indianapolis Indians Board of Directors and have been for a considerable period of time. So baseball has been just a part of me and what I've done. How, how amazing is the Schumacher family? They're, they're, they're amazing, amazing group. Uh, uh, all led by Max and uh, continue to hope that his health uh, prevails for a while, but he's always been the patriarch of the organization. Uh, they, we've gone through a lot of transition relative to current corporate structure, uh, stock ownership and shares and how that works and how it is we went through a stock redemption uh, throughout the years. But that was uh, kind of part of my background and growing and folks uh, uh, more transactional instead of the old family groups of people that kind of operated, have kind of changed the, the systems and mores, but we're headed in a, a positive direction. And the real, it's always been a profitable organization. 
now the real question becomes these uh, kind of uh, challenges relative to whether or not we should be named Indians or an ethnicity and those sort of things. But we'll work through those things. But they're a great, great family and have been great stewards of the organization. Growing up, did you have a favorite uh, baseball player after whom you patterned your game? What position uh, well, did you play? Yes. Uh, oh, a lot of them. Uh, but uh, uh, I was a Roberto Clemente fan because uh, he was so multiversal. And when I saw him throw a, a bazooka from right field <laughs> and to, to nail Bobby Bonds, I said, oh, my gosh, there's nothing like that I've ever seen before. But then I was a, I was a, a Dick Allen fan. And I was even a, oh, from the a, Phillies. A, yeah. Yeah, big time Dick Allen fan when he became a White Sox and became MVP with the Chicago White Sox. So, and then I went really early on. People that nobody even knows about Floyd Robinson and others who played for the White Sox, but uh, just kind of grew through that. Big Frank Hurt, the Hurt, Big Thomas was mm-hmm. was great. And now they've got some guys here that I'm I'm believing they're going to be successful in a World Series this year. I'm calling it right here on your podcast. <laughs> the Sox are winning the World Series over the Dodgers in five. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> how, how, we're gonna i'm gonna ask you about your time as a sports agent here in just a yes, few sir. minutes but, but yes, sir. how does sports in your view contribute to the building of strong leaders not just coaches but we see it in, in professional athletics and you know in amateur athletics what is it about sports that creates a situation where people can shine and mentor others well, we've talked about it a little bit already, Robert, when I talk about sports being a galvanizing piece, things that perhaps bring people together um, throughout my um, diverse background, whether you're playing in a baseball uh, league uh, or you're playing for a university, you're playing in high school, uh, the locker room becomes a great galvanizing piece, becomes a great mediator for those who have differences because you don't have the same differences once it is you're supporting the same team. Um, so it doesn't matter if you're a far right conservative or a far left liberal, if the, if the Colts win and talking about the Colts and their victory, or you're not being as productive when they lose, but you all of a sudden have some ability to have some conversation. And, and, and if we don't have more dialogue with one another, more conversation with one another, we're never going to be able to live with one another. So, I think sports is one of those sort of things as it teaches you as a young person. Now more for women as it had been in title. Uh, title IX made some differences in how it is. They get some equity with respect to how it's treated. I won't get into the, the whole uh, uh, sure. um, likeness piece mm-hmm. with uh, young athletes and whether or not they'll be paid and how they're compensated and all that and what it has to do with the whole network. We can do another whole show on that anytime you want. But uh, sports has created an environment for people to, to be together, commune together, understand one another, talk one another, uh, notwithstanding what it is, is their social biases. So I think sports is critical, and it's also been a critical piece about how we've galvanized around all political spectrums and about how we have driven Indianapolis as a sports driver from an economic development point of view. You have, I'm going to thank our sponsors again, and you have anticipated my next series of questions. But I always said the same thing about, you know, basic training. You know, we all came the first week of basic training. We all realized that, you know, there were a lot of us who were different and came from different parts of the country. But we, what we all cared about more than anything else was making sure that the rest of us made it out of basic training. Yes, sir. Like I would have done anything to help you know, the most uber liberal person on the planet graduate right. from basic training, because that's 
part of why that's part of the brotherhood of trying to get everyone through. Correct. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest is Milt Thompson. You've seen him on billboards. That's a little scary. Don't run off the road. (laughs) I'm not liable if you do. (laughs) I asked you a little bit earlier about, and I'll give you a few more minutes to talk about him. He is by far the most mentioned answer to this question. And that is, is there a particular Hoosier leader and or legend you most admire? And you mentioned the name of Jim Morris. Talk a little bit about him, please, and your friendship. I know that he gave a wonderful tribute to you. Uh, Milt Thompson, our guest, was the 2020 Whistler Award winner, as given by the uh, Greater Indianapolis Progress Committee, joining an amazing group of people, including Jim Morris, including uh, P.E. McAllister. Tell us about Jim Morris and your friendship. Well, Jim Morris um, was one of those uh, early on folks that I admired because he stepped across all kinds of lines to build things, not just build things, but to build relationships. Very few people had that knack to be able to do it. And he moved from uh, being a deputy mayor under Dick Luger to really kind of building franchises and was really the driver behind Market Square Arena getting built and having it being done downtown. Uh, And and then to to be able to uh, touch other people and say, this is how we're going to build this. Uh, so we used to call them the most ethical of movers and shakers that there were. Uh, you know, because other people, were, they, they gained their footing by stepping on other people's backs. Right. He stepped on other people's shoulders and then lifted other people up. Uh, he's a dear friend. Uh, he's really a mentor, not only to me, but others. Uh, I also mentioned two people there, uh, uh, Dick Luger, another, um, who... I, I share some moments that he and I had had together, just uh, being up in around um, uh, in Victor Field and everybody's gone. And just he and I in a suite talking about life and talking about Charlotte, talking about his family, mm-hmm. uh, uh, those kind of things. And he, he, and he would tell me, he says, uh, there's something special about you. I said, there's nothing special about me. He said, yes, there is. He said, because you're doing what I, I've been and, and praying for and thinking for is that we would have leaders who would reach out to others and be helpful to others. So Jim Morris and both of those exemplified that to me. I, I'd be remiss to not talk about uh, a female in that world, in, in the sports world, uh, uh, Sandy Knapp. We, I've come from her coaching tree, if you will, and I mentioned that on my television show, Playing for Keeps, and business support. But you can, uh, uh, when we talk with Allison Melanchthon, and, and we, we say we both came from Sandy Knapp's coaching tree. <laughs> but, but another is Sarah Evans Barker. Um, she selected me from, from nowhere uh, to fill up the term of former Governor Ed Welsh as a trustee for the Indianapolis Foundation. Uh, and that was uh, 28 years ago. Uh, and to fill his last three years, which means at the end of your three-year term, a six-year term, you are the chairman of the board of the Indianapolis Foundation. So there I was in 1997, the little rookie of six commissioners, uh, trustees on there, becoming the chairman of the board. And the, the effort was there because Dan Ephraimson, mm-hmm. uh, the other federal court appointee, says, let's have lunch. 
He comes to me. We have lunch up at Daddy Jackson's. Some other good good friends from the North Central area. But anyway, he says, uh, 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 says Milk, uh, um, uh, I'm, I'm I'm dying of stomach cancer, very much like my dad did. And I'm going to leave a hundred million dollars to the foundation. I'm going. Whoa! Why are you telling me this here at lunch? I mean, you're buying lunch too with hundred million dollars. <laughs> <laughs> He says, yes, but I'm not going to leave it to the trust. I'll only leave it to a, a corporate form. I'm telling you for two reasons, because you're the chairman of the board, and uh, we're both federal court appointees, and my family's history with the Indianapolis Foundation dictates that we do this right. So I'm leaving it up to you, and then Ken Gladys at the time, the executive director of Indianapolis Foundation, for us to figure it out. So that led to the merger between the uh, uh, legacy fund at the time, Hamilton County, Hamilton County Community Foundation and Indianapolis Foundation, where we created Central Indiana Community Foundation. Uh, I was uh, the, the first uh, inaugural chair of CICF uh, a few years thereafter uh, with great retreats and other understanding of the governance and how this was going to come together. We were able to be able to incorporate uh, donor advised funds essentially for all kind of a testamentary gifts be able to create more uh, resources. So our whole mantra was, how can we create more resources to help more people? Uh, so George Sweet on the other side and me on, on our side. So I was the first inaugural chair of that for a year and a half. And we finally got that organized and it's been, uh, and we hired Brian Payne uh, and uh, we're able to move that organization was roughly 180 million now to uh, a surplus of a billion. So I, I left, uh, left that uh, uh, that organization in, in December of last year, but still maintain, I'm still the chairman of the board of the English Foundation and also on the Impact Board of Indianapolis, uh, as well as now on the Women's Fund. So they, I couldn't couldn't leave it all alone. This is why at the beginning of the podcast, I say, if you read through Milt's CV, you just pull up a chair, it's going to be a while. And that's a testament to who he is. And I feel I feel somewhat good about the podcast, considering except for Sandy Knapp, every single person you just mentioned, uh, just mentioned in the past 10 minutes has, a, has been a guest on Leaders and Legends. There you go. There you go. And, and through those uh, conversations with with the Allison Melangdons of the world, who I think is a miracle worker, she just right. she could cure a rainy day. It's it's unbelievable the talent she has. And, and I nickname everybody on my show. I call her Super for Super Bowl. There. Oh, she's it's just remarkable how much right. talent she had and to be in still an incredibly kind and engaging, endearing person. But we talked about it a few minutes ago. This is the perfect segue for decades. Indianapolis has made sports and tourism, the, you know, the center point, if that's the right term of its downtown economic development strategy, which of course, redounds to the benefit of the entire state. There have been critics of this approach. What would you say to them if you were sitting at lunch or you were at moot court again, and someone was making the argument that the five, six decade emphasis on sports has not served Indianapolis well? I'll say what part about that it didn't didn't work. <laughs> uh, if they can tell me about what part didn't work, do you want to uh, sit with me at my dinner table when my dad has the contract to put the steps in the uh, in the Hoosier Dome, uh, and I'm trying as a 
with Danny Danielson, head of the Major League Baseball Committee, to see if they can change before the bond issue there to change it from uh, from clockwise to counterclockwise, so we could put a right field inside of the Hoosier Dome. Do they want to talk about uh, uh, the, the times when, uh, even advanced times when when I'm uh, we're trying to figure out with old timers games? Can we do that? What about our youth sports and opportunity? What about the sports festival that launched it all? What about the Pan American Games that got us international? Uh, um, Acclaim and mentioning uh, what what about the venues that we have that are still being utilized by our youth and our families and our organizations? What about the growth of the inner city? What about the change, notwithstanding what happened with Unigov and where that is now today? You can play politics with it all. But what would have happened had we not had it? Do they recall there were holes in the streets? And, I often and, say that as a kid growing up in the 70s, that the only time I ever came downtown was to watch Dick the Bruiser. That, that's it. And 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 the Athlas family, they went to school with me at West Lane Junior High School. And and, uh, and but so 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 the point being is that uh, what would have been had it not been for the strategy? If you look at that decade in the 60s and 70s, it became a rust belt along Highway 70. And you look at other people like Kansas City, St. Louis, Columbus, Ohio, just go down the road. Why are they copying us now? Because I'm always a believer in strategy first, best, or only. We became the first sports corporation. We became the best sports corporation. And if you're the only, you got a monopoly. If you got two of those, you probably have a monopoly. First, best, and only. We can can't claim, we can always claim the first. We can't always claim the best, but we are claiming the best because we're taking up a step because of all the civics that were learned from that. Think of the cottage industry of 40,000 volunteers from our Pan American Games. Where are they now? Where are the people who are leaders of that? Look at Mark Miles is the president of that. Look at the San Ignacio of the world that kind of led that, that routine. Uh, we're talking people that came out of that tree. Jack Swarbin is the, uh, you know, the athletic director at Notre Dame. Fred Glass, who I just recently had on my show, uh, talking about his book. Uh, and and uh, and former ethnic director there, uh, former head of the CIB, also a former whistle award winner. My point being is people have said, we've learned more than just how to be a volunteer. We've learned the cottage industry of the sports business. And then we implement it back. You can go to Max Siegel and others, head of USA Track and Field. You, the, the net is far. And Jim Morris was a big part of that too. Uh, a treasurer of the Olympic Committee, uh, World Fruit Program, but in the, in the Olympic Committee, uh, he and his relationship with with uh, 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 George Steinbrenner helped me and Mitch Daniels when I was leading the Olympic Training Center Initiative through the Sports Corporation. And he was the chairman of the uh, Hudson Institute at the time. And together, we were able to fly up to uh, Milwaukee on, on Joe Sexton's plane and to be able to interact with them to be able to get a, a provisional designation of an Olympic Training Center. That's not just Indianapolis. That is statewide. And of course, the statewide formula, as you well know, driving uh, 60% of the revenue and getting only maybe 30% back in in, in exchange is something that we still need to negotiate with our brethren from around the state. And I have no difficulty with that. Uh, of course, being a regular on the Mike Pence show for all these years. And (laughs) did you go to, (laughs) but did you, did you see that coming? 
you know, one of the things that's come through in the podcast, my only relation with the Pan Am games was that I was stationed out at Fort Benjamin Harrison. And ah, had to move. That, was, that was the uh, athlete's uh, um, village. I know I had to move. Yeah. <laughs> to accommodate. Right. Whatever. Right. Uh, but what has come through on the podcast more than once, you know, Ted Bohm has been a guest. Yes. Jack Swarbrick has been a Mr. guest. Justice Bohm. Yes. Jack Swarbrick. Yeah. I actually, and obviously, you know, we've had David Frick and various Certainly. others, uh, Mark Miles, obviously. Certainly. It's how the Pan Am Games is really almost the watershed when it came to Indianapolis's getting the Colts, obviously, uh, in the early 80s was big. We already had the Pacers. Obviously, the 500's been a constant for decades. But they've all said the Pan Am Games made other cities, countries, organizing bodies look at Indianapolis differently do you agree with that i, I do uh, uh not just because i was so intimately involved and and uh, uh was a part of the delegation that went to uh cuba negotiated with fidel castro and to get their presence here in the united states because it was the first time that we got to step outside of ourselves and think a little bit more highly of ourselves notwithstanding some of the earlier on to the old icva but you know visit indy uh, overtures towards move over New York uh, in uh, Apple's our Apple is our middle name. Yeah, I mean, so so you know, you can go through the through the moniker, but can we prove it? Uh, we we still had an inferiority complex even after the sports festival. After we completely changed the dynamic, which became the Olympic festival. But the Pan American Games said, now we have an international footprint to tell our story, even though we only have a, a short period of time to be able to develop it and manage it and do it. We can do this, and then we'll also leave a lasting legacy that no one else will be able to challenge. That was also true of the Super Bowl, also true with just recently March, March Madness. Um, you know, uh, uh, we're made for this moment. Uh, mm-hmm. Wonderful, wonderful uh, um, situation that uh, Scott Dorsey made possible, by the way. Uh, you ought to somehow uh, feature it on your podcast. I, but uh, I would love to talk to Mr. Dorsey. We've had Ryan Vaughn on. who Right. In my Ryan mind, was my, my inaugural show. Uh, Ryan is uh, the preeminent leader of his generation, in my view, in this city. Well, he's done well. And that's why he was the inaugural uh, mm-hmm. guest on Playing for Keeps. So that was uh, Ryan's uh, uh, chat with me. And we go way back through some Liberty Fund and some other things with our good friend Terry Anchor and others. But we've got uh, a lot of history, but people have made this happen. Not, not holes in the ground, uh, not thinking about it, but it was a very deliberate strategy, Robert. Very deliberate. We are going to leverage the Amateur Sports Act of 1978 that broke up the AAU to create to create mounds of opportunity, go to the, to the sporting uh, bodies that have the largest number of medals, if you will, and we'll recruit them to Indianapolis. And then we will develop business models out of them so that they are group A sports now that we have to be able to create models. And there's been business opportunity for it. Uh, here I am representing canoe and kayak. Why? because they couldn't get the same sort of money on an individual contract basis. So I teamed up with Telex uh, and the folks to be able to create uh, a, a, uh, a whitewater series uh, so they can help clean up a champion international, can clean up their waterways that they're in, but they're also the sponsors of canoe and kayak. And they change from just rowing back and forth to whitewater. And I see Buddy McAtee and, 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 and waders and I'm standing over the shores and little locations that I'm not even familiar with. I don't even know how I got there. But the point being is we were able to get them a paddling to Barcelona video 
so they can go on to limit gold and make their own money and be able to generate their own. So it, it brought out entrepreneurs. Brought out entrepreneurs to say, let's make this happen for this sports institution and organization. All that led to ultimately the Panem Games was a, was a, it was a sprouting time for bringing people to our community through the uh, uh, Larry Bird game that uh, Kathy Jordan and I had the pleasure of running for a couple of times. John Adams ran it thereafter. And, and, and then special Olympic opportunities that we had. Everybody that's a youth can use our facilities, as I mentioned before. But what we did, we invited the sports, not just celebrities, if you will, but those in the business infrastructure to town through our Youth Links tournament that we had in golfing events for others to participate in. Come to the Larry Bird game so we can raise money auxiliary-wise to be able to uh, bring these activities here. But all of that was done with ultimate intent because when the NCAA decided they were going to relocate from, from uh, Overland Park in Kansas City, uh, we weren't on the list of 20. Weren't on the list of 20. But by that time, we had had Tom Jernstad back here for the, for the, uh, uh, for the uh, uh, Youth Links tournaments dozens of times. He had already figured it out. He was head of the Final Four in the basketball for NCAA. He says, why don't we consider putting Indy on the list? I don't know we'll get Indy on the list. We could whittle down to the Final Ten. And then, as Indy always does, we lined up liaisons with individuals of all those people that were going to be making that, that decision. We ultimately win the decision. But the relationship that we built between our liaison mm-hmm made the difference in the transition. Of course, there had to be some economic things that changed. $50 million uh, in investment that primarily went to the old United uh, Airlines uh, uh, facility. And when that didn't work, so they had to convert that and figure out how we do it and get the mall completed and built and go through the gyrations of whether or not we can build a, a victory field downtown and get 600,000 more people in the downtown area to make the whole bond uh, process work. Uh, uh, so I would say, to, I would challenge all those that say, well, well, why would you do that? What kind of strategy was that? Now, the only thing I would challenge is throughout this, they said, well, why don't we build ourselves around arts and culture? I mean, you mean we've already built a brand and you're going to like substitute that brand for arts and culture when you've got Chicago up the road? And I'm not saying that we don't have great arts and culture, but we do. Sure. But it should be an auxiliary. It should not be the driving force since we've already developed a brand that drives us. Particularly if you got the Indianapolis Motor Speedway right over there, and you got you know an investor like the Holmans and and now like the uh, the Penske's, uh, I, I mean, wh- why would you turn yourself away from something that has clearly worked? Do you have a favorite Indianapolis sports moment? That's a. Oh yes. Go ahead. Oh yes, it, it, it obviously would would entail uh, making sure that my daughter was engaged. I mean, I can say lots of moments. Uh, but I mean, you know, there was the one, one time when we were sitting there and, and Joseph Adai almost drops and jumps into our lap. And my love partner, Jim Bleakie was saying, we can't, we can't score too soon. I said, we're behind score as soon as we can. We'll worry about the end of the game, whatever it is. So, uh, but on to the Super Bowl. So that was a, a fun time and a loud time, but, uh, uh, the loudest time that I've ever, ever been in any event was game five Pacers against the uh, Chicago Bulls. My daughter is with me as a young tyke, and Reggie Miller pushes off Michael Jordan and drains this three. The place exploded. So, you know, it was like, are you serious? Now, I've got some old personal moments, okay, as a 15-year-old or cranking a a home run out of old uh, Bush Stadium. But I'm talking about in terms of sports moments for us. 
uh, us going to the Super Bowl and uh, Reggie Miller draining that three against Michael Jordan and the Bulls. Those are two moments that I, I just recollect right off the top. I should say that we've had Marlon Jackson on the podcast. Who there you go. Of course. Mr. Brady's uh, pass there in that game. A very, very fine man. Yes. You know what? He is. He was a terrific very, very guest. He's, he's doing really amazing work. He and his, he and his wife are doing his terrific wife and work. And, and um, Michigan University are, are proud of them. What was your thought? This is a popular question among folks of your era, if I may say. <laughs> yes. We elderly. <laughs> That's okay. When you read in the paper that the Baltimore Colts were going to be the Indianapolis Colts, did you think of it not only as uh, a wonderful opportunity for the city, but also a wonderful opportunity for you and and how you wanted to to spend your career? Well, um, uh, uh, fortunately, I was engaged in that process a little bit and recognized when Bob Beersay comes here and wants to, you know, say, wow, we, that place is all blue and white. Yeah. You guys built a, a facility that's not a football facility. There's an expansion of a convention center. And, oh, you guys built this just for me? Yes, we did. That blue and white is just for you, brother. David uh, Frick well, told us that story when he came on. Exactly. See, the most the most unheralded, he's not underrated, because if you know him, you know how amazing he is, but the most unsung, brilliant leader in the last 60 years of Indianapolis to me is David Frick. Dave Frick's a dear friend, dear mentor. Uh, we connect. He's a former Whistler Award winner, and he was there just telling me how proud he, uh, he was of me to, to kind of be in, in that number. Uh, we spent times uh, together. Um, uh, his son-in-law was a member of my church for a long time. So we, 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 we kept up with each other. But David Frick was absolutely correct uh, in, in that uh, – uh, the Colts coming here was one thing. 1984 was the uh, year of my daughter's birth, so I, I can I recall it uh, easily. 37 years ago, and I was uh, involved in some of the liaison services there to make sure that people were comfortable. Uh, met early on with Pete Ward, and uh, you know he's been the CEO ever since he's come here. Some of their some of their ultimate players that have become friends. I even had a, a local origination television show called Focus on Indianapolis Sports, where I had people like. Uh, Nesby Glasgow and oh, yeah. Barry Krause and those kind of guys on my show. Uh, so it was, it was my way to recruit my way into being an agent at some point uh, throughout the years. And that ultimately occurred. And, and uh, those have been some of the better blessings that I've had. I'll ask you another question that I've asked previous members or previous guests on the podcast. We're talking to civic leader, attorney, and all around amazing fella. And that's Milt Thompson. If I had told you in 1983 that not only would Indianapolis one day host the Super Bowl, but it would completely redefine what it meant for a city to host a Super Bowl, you would have said? 1983 was two years after uh, they had the Final Four in Market Square Arena. Uh, Purdue participated in that. So we're talking about two years prior to 1983, where it is we said, my gosh, this Final Four, it's nothing like what it will be, right? Uh, it certainly hasn't been. Well, between 83 and the uh, 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 the Super Bowl uh, were the Pan American Games, where it is we kind of got rid of our inferiority complex and were able to develop sponsorships, network deals, uh, to be able to create some value for ourselves. But we also said, what are, what are we going to set for the next generation? 
That's where it is. Allison Melanchthon and the Super Bowl crowd and the Mark Miles folks went with the Super Bowl and said, you know, just getting a bid and running a great game. I just happened to be on the CIB at that same time while that was kind of going on. So, you know, no one ever asked us, well, is it a net game for the CIB in terms of all the things that the NFL extracts from you? Uh, you know, hint, 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 it probably was not a net gain, uh, but was, but it, but it's a net gain for us relative to all the other opportunities that we have. And that's how does it indeed built its superstructure around the things about selling the city during that period of time. But as Allison will tell you, and as she told us on our little show, that the, the lasting legacy piece is what's critical. And that's the things that the other organizations take and the NFL took and saying, if you're going to match the bid and what they've done in Indianapolis, you're going to do it here. A little, little known during that period of time, even before the two bids, and they talk about the two bids, Tom Shine, formerly of Local 7, he and I got together at the time with the Yersay family, and we thought we were going to put a bid in for, I think it was the 19, early 80s Super Bowl. And, uh, and that's what led to the next couple of uh, opportunities for the Super Bowl. And then in 2011, where, Jim, where Jimmy Jones just kind of bought it out mm-hmm. and had the bad luck and serendipity in Dallas where the weather was bad. And, and we turned right around in 2011. Uh, it was, it was uh, uh, Jim Irsay that said to uh, Jeff Saturday, meet me out of Rick's Boatyard and we'll, on a napkin, we'll take care of this uh, collective bargaining agreement. It was during that period of time that I began to really recognize the, this whole collateral piece of uh, how cities and franchises matter. Baltimore coming to Indianapolis, I wrote articles back there for National Business Magazine that talked about franchise free agency uh, or the sports industrial complex, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, talking about how it is you don't have to even like sports, but you're contributing to it if you buy a Miller Lite beer, um, that you're you're some part of this big fabric. So for someone to tell me that Indianapolis uh, has made a mistake in that enterprise, I would, I would hesitate to, uh, wouldn't hesitate to tell them. Once you look at the history, read it, understand it, and then believe it. You can change an opinion, but you're not going to change a belief. So, so, so we soldiers in the mines, uh, the the Dave Fricks and the Jim Morris's and the and the Ted Bones and the people that upon whose shoulders we we stand, uh, we're going to continue to create. So, I think that the legacy projects also set a standard that people looked to Indianapolis. Now, they're, they're going to outgrow us sometimes with the widgets, right? Uh, the arms races live and well. I mean, during the Super Bowl, you know, we built, you know, the J.W. Marriott, right? Uh, you know, and, and it was the king of the world until Austin built former rooms in their J.W., right? So, <laughs> yeah. So you can't, you can't claim uh, the only, but you still can claim the best if you keep leaving legacies behind. And that's what that strategy was all about. Robert, leave a legacy for other people to try to achieve. I'm going to go back to, for the name of your show, by the way, the legacy piece. I'm, I'm trying to, <laughs> <laughs> you might need a PR guy here, man. I might have to advertise you. <laughs> the, uh, I want to ask you a couple other questions. We have just a few more minutes left with Milt Thompson. Uh, you were a prosecutor for Stephen Goldsmith. You mentioned that uh, a few minutes ago. Did you enjoy that experience, and 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 what did you think of of Goldsmith's time as as mayor? Well, I uh, first of all, uh, I, I give prompts to Steve because uh, he looked outside of the box of people, uh, e- even though young black lawyers, even at that time, were steered. We're not going to get into a big law firm for all the reasons that we had discussed earlier, 
Uh, and they were kind of stared at you're either in criminal law or you're in family law. You really can't do a corporate law thing. That's just beyond whatever it is people thought of the expectation. Steve didn't look at me that way. Uh, he, he looked at me as a young, talented person. And I can take, let me give you two real quick stories about Steve Goldsmith other than him uh, uh, coming to my wedding. Uh, we, 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 we got along that well. Uh, uh, Steve promoted me to be the youngest supervisor on staff. I'm supervising 15 lawyers who are older than me and more experienced than me. And he comes over to me and says, you're trying this case and not that person. I had tried maybe five cases by the time he's pushing it in my face. Go try this case. I trust you to do this. There's one Saturday afternoon where we're doing, we're, we're, we're entering some felony things. And um, I'd already kind of held led a couple of sting operations that went south. And I was the one with the short straw. You got to go tell Steve, you know, you got to eat this whole uh, sting operation and all. But uh, when, on a Saturday morning, we're, we're, we're just, just chat. He comes over, we come over to his office and, and I start chatting. He says, you know, Milt, this whole death penalty thing uh, kind of eats at me a little bit. I said, what do you mean? You've got great deputy prosecutors and Dave Cook and other guys and folks that have been experienced. And he just goes, yeah, you know what? But I, I will never have, because I'm the elected prosecutor, I'll never have any one of my deputies if they don't want to try a death penalty case. I said, well, well, why do you think that is, Steve? Uh, you got people who are willing and able and capable and to do a death case. He says, because that's not their responsibility. It's my responsibility. Uh, so I said, that's that's nice. So why do you think it's just your responsibility? He says, because I'm not sure I believe that the death penalty is a deterrent. Come throw me back here as a young, you know, uh, uh, really late 20s uh, young lawyer for him making this admission. So to me, that automatically said he's a leader and willing to take responsibility. At the time, he thought he was being um, locked out of the mayor's office. And, uh, and, and he asked me to be a little bit of his uh, forerunner to actually uh, politic against people, my good friends, and be out front because he didn't want to be out front and ask particularly against our good friend, Ann Delaney, you know, who's sure. going to run against him in the same office. But uh, uh, he, he, he demonstrated to me that he had a uh, heart and he had responsibility. So I was a part of his transition team, uh, getting them into the whole side of the CIB parks department and all that noise. Um, but, uh, um, but, but Steve was always honorable and honest to me. Uh, so notwithstanding what other people think and all that sort of thing, you know, uh, uh, Steve's a brilliant man. Uh, 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 so I, I just took it at that and he's a man who gave me an opportunity when nobody else would. So I, I had to have that loyalty. And from there, I went on to the, uh, council for majority in the Indiana state Senate. He, um, he's agreed to come on the podcast. Good. I just need to get it scheduled for him. I'm good. excited uh, uh, to talk to him. He's a good man. He's a good man. Um, um, sometimes misunderstood you know, sometimes very, very smart people, people just don't get right. Yeah. <laughs> he's talking yeah, he's, over your head sometimes before you start, you know, he's, I mean, smart doesn't seem to cover it, but yeah, I get it. Yeah. Uh, a yeah. good friend of mine, one of my best friends growing up, his mother uh, worked for Steve and would talk about how smart he is. And her name was Carol Johnson. There you go. There you go. Last question before we get yes, to sir. the five questions. Okay. Um, did you get a chance to talk baseball with Mr. Castro? You're uh, both well, big baseball nuts. 
Well, that that's that's the longest story. When the Gary Dick did the 30th anniversary of it, they mm-hmm. they they both wanted to get the views from Sandy Knapp and Mark Miles about the conversation with uh, Fidel Castro. Uh, uh, you know, late in the evening, him being a nocturnal person, and they said, "No, you need to get Milt on the show to talk about it because." Our 90-minute conversation, half of it was Milton Fidel Castro talking about freaking baseball bats. <laughs> so 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 we so we, I went on the Gary Dick show to talk about that, but it's a long, long, long story than you've got time for. But um uh Elliot Abrams had come to advise our delegation, which was whittled down to 13 people to go and 13 members of the national press mm-hmm. that were gonna go on a 1943 DC3 down to Miami and fly over to Havana and all, all the indicia, all of that. But Long story short, uh, uh, we, we were there in the sports manufacturing facilities and we were walking out and Tom Eggleston and myself and others were looking down there weaving baseballs and we were listening to, if you make more baseballs on that table than you make over here, do you get more pesos than they get over here? And, you know, and then as we were walking out, they said, those gringos won't allow us to get wooden baseball bats that they, that they have in Jeffersonville and, 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 and I said, what the heck is that all about? So why don't the Gringos let them let their their players use wooden baseball bats? I didn't get it. So I go to our our uh, our, our State Department folks and, and translators and I said, "What was that?" I said, "We were never briefed on that." They said, "Don't worry about it; it'll, it'll never come up." It'll never go. Good. Okay, you so you sure? Because that sounds really odd. Why would they be saying this? You know, and they're Spanish, and we're overhearing this and kind of immersed into the language. Well, anyway, we said, if we're going to see Fidel Castro, is going to be the very very last night. Uh, suffice to say, my liaison was Alberto Wentz, former 400 uh, uh, meter uh, hurdle champion, and and uh, all that. And and uh, I'll, I'll go through. I'll dispense with all of uh, the the, the uh, trans the Tropicana Club and marching out uh, single file behind the alley and hopping on the bus and meandering through Revolutionary Palace and getting up to there and all 13 of us on a, on a, one elevator and getting up there. And, only place air conditioning would work. But anyway, we walk into the big conference room on the fourth floor and Sandy Knapp says, wow, you need to use the restroom. And it seemed like 45 minutes, really just a few minutes. And the door opens up and in walks Fidel Castro. I mean, with the gleaming fingers and peep penetrating eyes and all the other things that we call it unreganite because he kind of tapped you on the shoulder. And right. But anyway, can't come into, uh, we can't go into my office because you're too many. We'll go to my conference room. We'll go to walk single file again to the conference room. We sit there and they told us, don't ask him any questions. I said, got this. And uh, Mark Miles, Andy Knapp, Tom Eggleston, me, Larry Conrad. You know, I can see the folks that were, were on this little, little little deal. One side, one way mirrors behind us and all. So they said, don't ask him questions. If he has a question, only ask it if it's your area of responsibility. So I was briefed on that. Keep your hands on top of the table. Do that. And he turns to me and he goes, about 10 minutes in, comrade sportsman. Oh crap! There goes my. Career. <laughs> <laughs> he says, um, "Who are the best pitchers in Major League Baseball?" And I respond, "Oh, God, this is he's a question I got all night. This is good." Mm-hmm. I go, "Roger Clemens and and Fernando Valenzuela." And he taps out Torreno. Said, "No, he's he's Mexican. He's not Cuban. Don't worry about him defecting. So he's already gone." <laughs> so I'm thinking I'm out of my question and I'm good. So we ask a few more things like. Uh, the color of the gymnastics mats so they can match them. What's the sea level in Indy versus that of uh, Miami? And what's good? What about the Fort Benjamin Harrison? What kind of a food are you guys booby trapping? What's the what's the all that stuff? So I go on. I say, oh, I'm 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 out of here. I'm good. When we get out of here, I'm going to be good. I'm save my life. Then he turns to me, goes, Comrade Sportsman. He says, 
why don't your major league baseball players use aluminum baseball bats? My brain is washing over and I'm going, here I am representing the United States of America with this dictator on the other side of my question. And we can only use sports terminology. We can't use trade embargo language. I'm going, what in the heck am I going to say? And you should see Mark looking up at me, Stan looking (laughs) at me. I think Larry Conrad was down on the floor on his knees taking pictures. I just had to yank it from my old prosecution days. And that's where it came out. And I just said, Mr. President, in my opinion, the biggest difference in the major league baseball is the artificial baseball service. And with the different, with the advance of the velocity on a major, on a aluminum baseball bat with our strong and macho players it would make it a dangerous sport. That's right. That's how I had to do it. That's how I yanked it out. And that's why we talked about bats. And that's where we, <laughs> and I did ask him one question. I did ask him one question. And when I said, Mr. President, they said, we can't ask questions. If I'm going to write a book called Milton Fidel, I got to have one question asked, as you know, as a, as a, <laughs> a trusted journalist. I said, Mr. President, what do you think about the designated hitter rule? You know what he responded? You can go to Borders and get my book, Milton Fidel. But no, he, said, <laughs> he, he says, you know, I'm a baseball purist. But, you know, because my countrymen think offense is a good thing, it's okay rule. It's not often we have someone on the Leaders and Legends podcast who gets to toss a question at Fidel Castro, uh, but that's one of the reasons uh, Milt Thompson is so special. We've reached the point in the Leaders and Legends podcast where we ask the same five questions of all of our guests. Milt, are you ready? Fire away, my friend. What was your first job? My first job was, that's easy. Um, My dad had a uh, precast concrete uh, business and uh, uh, at, uh, seven or eight years old, I was oiling pans and forms for in order to pour concrete into. So I had been lifting concrete, uh, since I was little. Question number two, what was your first concert? Wow. A concert that I was able to actually attend or one that I was performing in. I was a at- concert that you uh, attended that you paid your, not, not with your parents, but your own money. I, I, I was able to go, although I was a young lad, I did go with, uh, uh, a couple of uh, uh, older cousins, and that was at the Beatles at the uh, uh, at the Coliseum. Oh, you're kidding me! I'm not kidding you. Well, you know, uh, obviously, you can't really beat that. I maybe maybe Led Zeppelin as a first concert. <laughs> you just might do that, but the the Beatles is your was your first concert. My, my first concert, and I was a young lad. And Mike we McDaniel all, was there. Yeah, well, we were all taken over by Beatlemania. Mm-hmm. Uh, we all had our back uh, yard bands and what have you and and when we interviewed mark miles i'm sure he's told you this that you know when the beatles were on their way to the coliseum they drove right past his house there you go he has the memory of watching them go past go down the street well in our as you say our era uh (laughs) there could be nothing bigger than the beatles question number three if you could recommend any book for someone to read which book would you choose the bible Number four, if you could witness any event in history, be there as it happens, which event would you choose? Resurrection of Christ. A last question. Actually, I'm going to ask you one bonus question, given the, <laughs> given, given the proximity of the event to our actual recording date. But last question, if you could have dinner with anyone living today, two living hours today. off the record. Living today, two hours off the record, whom would you choose? Uh, um, w- would it be um, uh, gratuitous to say Robert Vane? 
Well, I, I, I'm happy to buy that dinner. I guarantee you that. I'd love to spend two hours. We spent a lot of time together, but uh, we're gonna have. I'm gonna buy you lunch after this uh, podcast. But I do think you can do better. Miles would choke if you choke. Yeah, yeah, that 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 would be true too. Uh, uh, I would. I, I wow, that's a great question. Um, but uh, I, I I think that I would pr- probably choose uh, uh, President uh, Zelensky of uh, Ukraine. That's a great answer. It's one we've not had. We haven't recorded that many podcasts since the invasion. We did record one with Senator Dan Coates, but it's a terrific. I, I've just terrific. been impressed by his resolve. Mm-hmm. Uh, just think a comedian and an actor can actually um, become such a leader in such a short period of time. But here's the last question I meant to ask you earlier, and I'm not I'm not going to end the podcast without it. Uh, we are recording this in early April. In April 4th, 1968 was the assassination of Martin Luther King. Uh, You were here in Indianapolis. What do you remember about that night and, and how Indianapolis responded? I I remember a lot of things because if you look at the PBS uh, special, they have the decade special, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. And and I was kind of the tweener between the uh, 60s and myself and Charles Blair were interviewed on that proposition about racism. They were really asking me about why didn't my dad riot, uh, like all the other, uh, uh, businesses like that. My dad was much more interested in, um, economics than he was about rioting. He wanted to make sure his business could thrive and he wanted to make sure his kids could grow and grow out of it. So I had a couple perspectives, first of all, just by being around, um, my classmates and others. And, and there was just like spewing of, of hatred and, and why is there so much racism? And then the other part was how it is, do we extend an olive branch and do we, uh, learn from this? So it was a really, really, really mixed emotional time for me as a youngster uh, during that time. But I remember it quite well. Um, my youngest nephew, it was his birthday. I remember that. And we were talking about uh, cake and he was just a really, really uh, a, a tyke. Um, but uh, as, as a uh, really, really young teen, I said, that, is this what we're going to be up to the rest of our days? You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today has been someone who I wouldn't mind being his son-in-law, and uh-huh. that's Mr. Milt Thompson. Talk to anybody in this city. Talk to anybody who's done anything, and they will tell you that Milt Thompson not only is at the center of it, he's a catalyst of it. He's a wonderful friend. He's a terrific, terrific Hoosier, and we're very happy to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Milt. I'm I'm so glad. Thank you so much. Congratulations again on your platform, Robert. Uh, you do great service for so many people. And I know that people will patronize your great sponsors and you'll continue to do good work. And maybe the next time I'm on, I will uh, maybe s- succeed uh, maybe less than 100 people. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Milt. You have a great day. Thank you, Robert. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, 
please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Thank you.